You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. He is risen indeed. That's sort of the... uh... That's one of those things that Christians have been saying to each other for a couple of thousand years now. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's exactly. It's not, it's not like he is risen, we hope, or we, he is risen, we think so, or he is risen, you know, fingers crossed. He is risen indeed. Like there's no question in our minds. He is risen. He is alive. He is no longer dead. Jesus came out of that tomb alive and well, and he is still alive today. It's a positive confirmation that Easter is a reality. So as Christians, we don't celebrate unverified, unsubstantiated rumors. We don't commemorate an unconfirmed, unreliable fairy tale. We believe with confidence that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, having said that, sometimes that's not that easy, is it? Sometimes we kind of step back in our, in our more kind of rationalistic, skeptical moments. We think to ourselves, dead people coming back to life. That's, that's a stretch. That's, that's something. That's not easy to believe. Well, you know what? You're not along. You, you are very much like the first century church that Peter wrote to, the Jewish church. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this to them. We did not follow cleverly devised fables or tales when when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was able to say to them who were doubting and questioning and perhaps just a little bit skeptical, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised, made-up fairy tales when we told you about the power and the coming of Jesus, because we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. We were there. We know what we're talking about So if he said that to Peter this morning, he is risen, Peter would say, he is risen indeed. No question in my mind, I know for sure that the Lord is alive. Our faith, folks, is is rooted in historical, verifiable realities that allow us to say with confidence that Jesus is alive indeed. Now, does that mean that we don't need faith? We've just studied Ephesians chapter 2, where the apostle says that faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. It's something that God gives to us that really confirms and, and saves us. No, we need that work of grace in our lives. We must have faith operative in our lives. God gives us faith. But almost inevitably and invariably, when God gives faith, it's a consequence of somebody looking at the evidences. You see, the evidences, the proofs of Christianity kind of pave the way in our journey to come to real faith when God does that miracle in our lives. So real faith is based on the gift, the miraculous working of the Spirit of God in our lives. But oftentimes, it's the way is paved by apologetics, by evidences, by proofs that cause us to recognize that what the Bible is saying is, in fact, worthy of exploration. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. He's writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church wasn't a great church. They were a struggling church. They were a church that was wrestling with all kinds of division and all kinds of sin, all kinds of issues. Not like the Ephesian church that we're studying about right now. The, the, the 1 Corinthian church, the Corinthian church was a, was a problem church for the Apostle Paul. And so at this, passage, at this point in his journey through the book, he talks about the resurrection. This is kind of the capstone on the whole book. And he talks about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. And he begins by giving five evidences of the resurrection. The first three of these are objective realities. They are concrete, objective realities that Paul references. And then he talks about two things that are a little bit more subjective and experiential. But nonetheless, all five of these are powerful evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, were these the only five evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. There's nothing in here about the empty tomb. There's nothing in here uh, about the other evidences that we could point to about that, that support and substantiate and verify the, the fact of the resurrection. But these are the five that the Holy Spirit gave Paul to write about. And so these are the five that we're going to talk about. And the first one is this, the testimony of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along as I begin reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. One of the most compelling arguments for the validity, the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fact that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is all laid out in the pages of the Old Testament. So if you really understand the Old Testament, you will understand this, that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Beginning in, uh, beginning in uh, I was going to say Revelation, that's at the other side. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, where we, we hear about about Jesus. And then throughout the entire Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. It's about the Messiah. It is about the one that God is going to send. I'll give you some examples. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 talks about the fact that the Messiah would come from outside of time, from ancient days, and that he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, that he'd be a descendant of David. Isaiah tells us that he would be born of a virgin, and that his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Isaiah tells us that this Messiah, this coming one, will be God incarnate, God in the flesh. Zacharias tells us that he was going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah tells us in great detail that he would die as a substitute for sinners. He would die in their place, that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Psalm 16 describes in great detail, very specific detail, the process and the horror of crucifixion before crucifixion had ever been invented. I think it was invented by the Phoenicians in about five or 600 B.C. David is writing in 1,000 B.C., and he lays out crucifixion in great, great detail. 
Isaiah speaks about the fact that Jesus would substitute his life for sinners and that after his after having sacrificed himself, he would see and rejoice in what he accomplished through his death. Psalm 16 tells us that God would not allow his anointed one, his Messiah, to undergo decay. Daniel tells us that after Jesus had done his work of destroying sin, he would destroy the temple and bring to a close the old covenant era because a new covenant, a new relationship between God and man would have been established in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Folks, the Old Testament is the story of Jesus prefigured. All the story of the temple, all the story of the tabernacle, the whole story about how Isaac was there on the altar and Abraham was about to plunge the knife into his son to sacrifice him and God provided a substitute. All of it, it's about Jesus. The Old Testament is filled with the story of Christ. And what Paul is saying is that look to the Old Testament. If you struggle to understand the story of the resurrection, just read the Old Testament because it's there and it is. I want, to, I want you to turn to Isaiah 53, the passage that we read Um, on Good Friday. And by the way, as you're turning there, I just want to say a word of thank you. Isaiah 53, I want to say a word of thank you to everyone who participated in the Good Friday service, everyone who has participated on Easter Sunday, the worship team, and everybody who has served us. Folks, I know that most of you have gone home because you're tired, but uh, I just want to say that we're so grateful to have so many people who are willing to serve and put in time and invest in the the ministry of this church. It's a blessing, and we're grateful to God for, for you. So Isaiah 53, Um, my wife Cindy has a, we have an uncle, and his name is Morley, he is Jewish, he is a lawyer, and he is a dear friend. I have been witnessing to him for close to 38 years now, I've been talking to him about Christ, and he is hardened to the gospel. I have sent him books. I've sent him books by people who have been converted, Jewish people, like The Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah by uh, Alfred Edersheim, which is a great book written in the 1800s. I sent it to him. He won't read it. I sent to, I've sent him other books, and he won't read them. Finally, a couple of years ago at the cottage, he was up, and I said to him, Morley, can I read you a passage of Scripture from your Bible? And after sort of 38 years, he finally relented, and I read him this passage of Scripture from Isaiah 53. He was sitting there at the dining table, and I, and I said this, Morley, listen. This is about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, verse three. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him. The chastisement that brought us peace was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we were are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Morley looked at me, and he said, that sounds very much like the New Testament. And I said, Morley, that's from your book. That's the Old Testament prophet. 700 years before Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again, telling the story of the gospel. And he just get up and he says, I don't want to hear this, and walked out. He said, if, my, if I ever converted Paul, my mother would roll over in her grave. So pray for Morley if you think about it, and Fran. Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again according to the scriptures, all for our sins. 
powerful argument. Secondly, the witness of the early church. Look at verse five. He appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's that's Jesus' half-brother, the one who wrote the book, and then to all the apostles. Those are the ones who followed him and ministered to him during his earthly ministry. What Paul is saying is that the evidence is not just found in the Old Testament, it's found in people who are alive today. And there are hundreds of us. It's almost as if Paul is saying, look, Corinthians, if you don't believe me when I'm telling you about Jesus, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people still walking the face of this earth right now who have met the resurrected Christ, people who have stuck their fingers into the holes in his hand and his feet and put their hands into the hole in his side. There are people who are living today, Paul is saying, who have seen and met with and interacted with and have eaten with and have laughed with and have celebrated with Jesus alive forevermore. And he says, some of them have died. Some of them have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're in heaven. But the reality is, if you struggle to believe this, you need to understand that there are eyewitnesses who met with Christ after the resurrection This is only, when Paul wrote that, it was about 25 years after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of the the startling things, one of the things that historians talk about and scratch their head about a lot, because they don't believe in the resurrection, but one of the things that they wonder about is how is it possible that in 30 AD, there was no such thing as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? It just didn't exist. And by two or three years later, churches were popping up all over the known world, all around the Mediterranean. How is that possible? It's like in a nanosecond of time, historically speaking, the church didn't exist, and suddenly it was everywhere. The church was everywhere. We don't know how the church in Rome was established. Paul didn't do it. Apollos didn't. We don't have a clue who did it. What we, and what we think is that Jews who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost heard the gospel, were converted, went back to Rome, started a church. And Paul's desire, he says when he was writing to them, he wants to go visit them and meet them. What happened is that people met Jesus, heard about Jesus, were converted in the first couple of weeks, first couple of months of the early church, and they just began to spread out all over the world, all over the known world, taking the message of Christ everywhere with them, gossiping the gospel, and people were being saved, and lives were being changed, and the church was being established. Some people say, well, this was a conspiracy theory. The disciples, these people all got together one day. They huddled up. Come on in, everybody. Come on in, disciples. Let's have a conversation here. We all know that Jesus died. His body's still there in the tomb, so we don't want all his good teaching to go to waste. That golden rule thing that he taught us, that's a really good thing, and that consider others more important than yourself. We should keep that alive somehow, so here's what we're going to do, okay? Here's the conspiracy We're all going to tell everybody, although we know he's dead, we're all going to tell everybody that he's alive and that he is the Lord and the King and the Messiah. And we're going to pinky swear, okay? So let's just pinky swear. We're all pinky swear. And we'll tell everybody that although we know he's dead, he's alive. And that is nonsensical. Because the reality is that in the first 20, 30 years of the church, these 11 of the 12 disciples died martyrs' deaths defending the truth that Jesus rose from the grave. 
Years ago, Cindy and I were in southern India, and I didn't know how the southern Indian church started in Chennai and down in that area. Beautiful people. They love the Lord. Like, big, big church, millions of people. It was Thomas. Thomas. He met Jesus. He put his hands in his side. He fell at the feet of Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And he began to gossip the gospel, and he ended up in southern India where they killed him because he wouldn't recant. Nero went crazy, killing thousands of Christians in this Roman church that I talked to you about, this little church in Rome that had spread and grown. Nero blamed the great fire of Rome on them, and he burned them, he slaughtered them, he dressed them up in animal costumes and fed them to the lions. It was brutal, it was barbaric, and they suffered and they died. Why? To perpetuate a lie? No, because they knew it was true. You see, the witness of the early church is powerful. And not only did these disciples willingly give up their lives, Peter and Paul died in the same year, probably 68, 69 AD in Rome at the hands of Nero. But it wasn't only them, it was the people that they taught. It was the people that they had passed the gospel onto who also willingly gave up their lives. Antipas was roasted alive in a hollowed out bronze bull. They put him in a bowl, this, this, this bronze bowl, they put him in, they locked him in, they lit a fire underneath it, and they cooked him inside that bowl. Why? Because he would not deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. Papias, we have his writings. He was a disciple of John, the apostle, and he talks about how John the elder ministered to him and spoke to him about Jesus. We got the testimony of Polycarp, who was also a disciple of John, how he, Polycarp would not recant his faith and he was burned alive as a man of about 88 years old. Clement of Rome was born in the year that Jesus died. He became the bishop of Rome in 88 AD. In the year 100 AD, somebody tied him to an anchor and throw, threw him into the Mediterranean Sea because he would not deny that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And you could talk about Ignatius, martyred in 108, or Tertullian, or Justin Martyr, or, or Clement of Alexandria, and the list goes on, and we have their writings, and we know what they believed, and we know that who, from whom they got their theology and their truth. You see, this is verifiable. This is historically grounded truth. It's not some fable that's made up, cleverly devised tale, but the eyewitnesses told others and the gospel grew and was spread from one to another. But then thirdly, Paul talks about his own conversion. Read with me from verse eight. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, the apostle Paul is speaking. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what, is, what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So there he is, Paul the Apostle, hated Christians, hated Christ, blaspheming against Christ, doing everything he could possibly do to destroy and stomp out of existence the early fledgling church. He's on his way to Damascus to um, arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, hopefully to experience the same fate that Stephen experienced when he stood there and hauled the cloaks of the more senior people in the Sanhedrin as they stoned Stephen to death. That's what his heart was all about. 
He hated Christ, and he hated the gospel, and he hated the church. And on the way to Damascus, the Son of God, the resurrected Christ, met him and turned him about 180 degrees. He repented of his sins, and he began to go in the entirely opposite direction. As I said last Sunday in church, he went from a man who hated Christ to a man who preached Christ, a man who hated the church to a man who nurtured, planted, and grew churches. His conversion is a startling moment in the history of Christianity, in the history of the world. And he's saying, this is an evidence. This is proof. I am living proof that Jesus is not dead. I would not be who I am today were it not for the grace of God, were it not for the intervention of the resurrected Christ. So here's the thing. Jesus has been doing that in the lives of people ever since. He's doing it in the lives of people today. He's done it in your life, I trust. You were going along in your life one way, self-absorbed, worshiping self, priority number one was me. Get all the gusto out of life that I can get. You only go around once in life, so the guy with the most toys at the end wins, right? That whole modern mentality. And suddenly, somehow, your life was changed. And you look back, and what's the explanation for it? You repented of your sins, you're going in an opposite direction. Now you're loving, living for, and serving Jesus. You love his people. How did that happen? The same reason, the same way that changed Paul's life. You had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. You were born again from above. The Spirit of God worked in your heart. You met Jesus and he changed you. That's the only explanation for who you are today. You had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Now, when something happens once, it's notable. When something happened to the Apostle Paul, if that was... Paul was changed, that's notable. If that happens to a group of people at the same time, it's interesting. Could be religious hysteria, could be some sort of weird kind of something's in the water. (laughs) You don't know. But when that same something happens regularly in every generation to to, to people, that they are transformed in every culture, with every language, they, they they experience the same thing, exactly the same thing. They become followers of Jesus Christ. They repent of their sins. They fall at the foot of the cross. They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe in him with their whole heart. They look to him exclusively as their savior. They get invested in the church. They begin to live for others is more important than themselves. All of that stuff that happens when a person becomes a Christian, when that happens in every culture, in every society, from people of every language, tribe, nation, and and, 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 and ethnicity, when that happens over and over and over and over again, you got to stop and say, like, what's going on here? And the answer is Jesus. He's not dead. He's doing the same thing in the lives of people all over the world today as he did in the life of the Apostle Paul. So here's the great news. Today, thousands of people in dozens of cultures speaking dozens of different languages are going to experience the same thing. They're going to encounter Christ. They're going to fall before the cross. They're going to confess that they are sinners. They're going to be born again by the Spirit of God. They're going to fall in love with Christ. They're going to fall in love with his church. They're going to fall in love with the gospel. They're going to be joy-filled people because they're forgiven, and they're going to heaven, and they know it. And they may not speak the language that you speak. They may not eat the food that you speak. They may not live in the culture that you live in. You might not even, they're just beyond you. So they're so different than you, except you have this in common. How does that happen? It's the resurrected Christ. It's the only answer. It's the resurrected Christ. Jesus is still doing in the lives of people 
what he did in the life of the Apostle Paul. So let me just say this to you by way of application. Don't ever, don't ever diminish the value of your testimony. You may say, well, I was never part of the hell's angels and I was never, you know, wonderfully saved in prison. I'm just, I'm just a housewife. I'm just a guy who works in, you know, teaches school. Look, your testimony is amazing. Your testimony is amazing. Share it with people. Talk to people about what God did in your life. It's a powerful story that proves that Jesus is not dead. Now, those are three, what I call, objective, sort of concrete evidences that Paul uses. Now he uses two less objective, somewhat subjective, but experiential evidences that I think we need to look at. And the first, to do that, what he does is this. He asks the question, hypothetically, what happens if Jesus isn't raised? Like, if if the resurrection isn't a fact, what do we do? And he kind of asked that question beginning in verse 12. And down at verse 16, he kind of answers it in two very powerful ways. If Christ is not raised, this is what he says. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the first. Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then secondly, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've died. There's no hope for them. If in Christ, I'm sorry, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what he's saying here is he's saying if Christ isn't raised, there are two horrible realities. One, we are still in our sins. We are still living under the condemnation of a holy God. And two, there is no hope beyond this life. And then he says one of the most powerful, most wonderful verses in all of the New Testament. Verse 20, read it with me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, in reality, indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he turns it all on his head. He says, so what does this mean now? What are the implications of this? Well, one, this is, the, this is the fourth argument. One, we have the joy of absolute forgiveness. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we are no longer in our sins. We are people who are absolutely, completely, totally forgiven for our sins, as Josh said. We are forgiven people. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation, as we said on Friday, to those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's sort of think about this for a second. Every religion, every religion on the planet is rooted in two fundamental premises. One, God is. There is a God, and we know that. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 1. Everyone understands that. We suppress the truth. We try to deny the truth. We run from the truth. But down deep in our hearts, when we're honest with ourselves, late at night, when we, we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we know that we know that God is. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2, he has written his law on our hearts. And so we know that we know that we know that we have broken his law. And the consequence of of that is inevitably and always guilt. 
And that guilt that comes from knowing God and the fact that his law is written in our heart and we know that we have fallen short of his glory, that truth is the engine, that guilt is the engine that drives every religion on the planet. From any time in history, from any place in history, it is that sense of guilt, that sense of dread, that sense of foreboding that motivates every religion and every religious, every act of religious devotion on the planet. And so what does it look like? Well, basically here's the premise. God is up here and he's not pleased. We know that to be true, Romans chapter 1. We have broken God's law, and he's angry with us. We know that, Romans chapter 2. And that religion, it doesn't matter what you call that religion, that religion becomes a ladder. And you climb that ladder to the top, hoping against hope that if you do the things that your religion tells you to do, that you can assuage somehow the wrath of God, that you can take away his anger, that you can please him enough that when you get to the top of that ladder, he is going to say, come on in. It's okay. And if you go to university and study comparative religions, they'll tell you that Christianity is just like that. But I want to tell you this. Biblical Christianity is the furthest thing from that. And it's the only only faith, the only articulation of theology in the world that is inconsistent with that. Because what biblical Christianity says is that you didn't want God anyway. You were dead in your sins. You were running as fast as you can away from him. You're in rebellion against him. He was your enemy. You were his enemy. And God in his mercy reached down into your ignorance and blindness and rebellion and saved you. There's no ladder that you climb up. It's that Jesus is the Savior. And you know that. If you're saved, if you're born again, if you have come to Jesus, you know that. We experienced something that, of that on, on Good Friday when we celebrated that we are forgiven people. That experience that the Apostle Peter calls joy unspeakable, filled with glory, is our experience. And it is radically, completely totally and fundamentally different than any other religious experience on the planet. And we got to live it. Not only do we share our testimony, but we live our testimony. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm loved by God. I'm going to heaven. I'm safe and secure in the arms of Christ. We live that out and it produces joy unspeakable and filled with glory. We sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And then people come to us and say, good grief, tell me about the hope that's in you. Why are you living like, where do you get the joy? Where do you get the peace? Where do you get that sense that everything's okay? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. How come you're okay and everybody else is freaking out? God loves me and I'm forgiven and I'm his child and he's my father and Jesus is my brother and nothing in this world can separate me from his love. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth or nothing under the earth. I got joy. Yeah, things are tough. It's hard. Life's not easy. But I know that my Savior lives, and I can trust him, 
and I rest there. See, that's a powerful, powerful testimony. Powerful, powerful witness to what Jesus does. And it's a witness, as I said, that whether you're living in, in one of those little villages that I used, we, Cindy and I used to go to in Central Africa, Gabon and, and Congo and those places, where literally it's just sticks and, 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 and grass that builds the church. They know the same thing because Jesus has saved them just like he saved you and put his peace and his joy in your hearts as he did it in theirs. And lastly and very quickly, because Jesus is alive, because in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have not perished but have everlasting life. One of the greatest testimonies, one of the greatest experiential testimonies to the validity of the Christian faith of the resurrection is a Christian funeral. It's watching a Christian die well. I had a friend who invited me to come and pastor with him one year and we were talking. I got, since there's no other service coming, I'm going over my time boldly. Um, and he's, he was committed to long-term ministry in his church. He was 33, I was 30. I said, so Mike, how long are you going to stay here? He says, I'm going to stay here till the Lord calls me home. And, he said, and then he said this, and the last act of service I'm going to do for the people of my congregation is to show them how to die well. And he did about four years ago. He died confidently. He died confidently because he knew he knew what Paul wrote when he said this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed. That's what John Owen, when he wrote his book, he wrote it, he entitled it The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Death died when Jesus died. Jesus killed death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death or grave, where is your sting? Like, we know that. We need not fear. The process of dying is not going to be easy for any of us. But that's what the Apostle Paul says. We don't grieve like others who have no hope. Undergirding foundationally in our lives is a confidence that when that time comes for all of us, he will be with us. We will not be afraid. He will walk us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we will not be frightened or intimidated or scared of anything because the shepherd will be there. The forgiveness of sins and the way that we handle death are powerful testimonies, powerful evidences to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. So there's five here. The witness of the Old Testament, the witness of the apostles in the early church, the evidence that God creates in our lives through conversion the evidence of forgiveness of sins and the joy that that brings and the confident hope of eternal life that we share. So the question I have to ask you is this. Have you ever really, really trusted Jesus? Have you really just sort of thrown yourself fully upon him? Let him just rest in him. 
Have you trusted Christ? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And as a consequence, are you forgiven? And do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that when this life ends, eternal life begins? You can know that. But it's not by climbing a ladder. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing more good things to try to please God and assuage his wrath. It's simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. For by, for by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Trust him. That's all, you, that's all we were required to do. Believe in him. And he'll save you. Trust him because he's the savior. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we don't believe cleverly devised fables, but our faith is an historically rooted, verifiable confidence that Jesus died and rose again. I thank you, Lord, for taking all of that truth contained in the scriptures and in all of the apologetics and making it live in our hearts by grace through the miracle of the new birth. And I would simply pray for anyone who is here this morning who, is no lot, who has not come to that place or somebody who can't say with absolute confidence that they know that they are going to heaven, that they know that their sins are forgiven. Lord, let them just rest, lean back on you. Let them simply trust. Let them fall completely into your arms, into your grace and believe that they are forgiven because of what you did on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you took our place, that you took our punishment, you took our hell, and you've given us your righteousness. And so God, I just pray that you would be at work in the hearts and the minds of people here. People who have heard this message already preached twice, be at work, Lord. Open the eyes of the blind and stop the ears and let faith grow in the heart, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.